The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. Wherever you are joining us from, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub. My name is Eve Patton. I'm the Deputy Director of the Long Room Hub, which is the flagship Institute for Arts Humanities Research in Trinity. Uh, it's a great honour for the Hub to host this very special Bloomsday online event to talk about Ulysses in the current climate of the pandemic and social distancing. Now, it probably strikes many of us that Leopold Bloom would have been very poorly adapted to the protocols of the COVID-19 stay-at-home instructions. Uh, Molly, of course, is a much better role model for surviving the conditions of lockdown. Uh, but on a more serious note, I think that the particular circumstances of this year's Bloomsday present us with an opportunity to reflect on Ulysses as that supreme love letter to the city of Dublin. Uh, and for us to celebrate Dublin and all the, the great cities of the world, Paris, Trieste, New York, as they begin to emerge from the extraordinary desolate emptiness of the past few months. Well, to think more about these topics, we're very fortunate to be joined today by four world-leading Joyce scholars. They're each going to speak to you for about 10 minutes, and I hope uh, that at the end of that, we'll have time for some questions. So you'll see that you're able to put questions into the Q&A panel, uh, and please do that as we go along. You can also follow us on Twitter, and we're live streaming on Facebook. Uh, and again, the links for these and other links that may interest you are going to come up in uh, the chat panel. I'd now like to introduce my colleague, Professor Sam Sloat of the School of English here in Trinity, who's going to be masterminding the proceedings today and also introducing the rest of the panel to you. Sam is Associate Professor at uh, the School of English in Trinity. He's the author of numerous studies uh, of Joyce and Beckett. Uh, his annotated edition of Ulysses has already become quite indispensable for anyone trying to make their way through the book. It's a mine of useful and sometimes quite hilarious information. The good news is that uh, his new co-authored annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses, which I'm informed runs to a mere 620,000 words, uh, is going to be published by Oxford University Press in 2021. So Sam, let me now welcome you and hand over proceedings. Thank you. Um, thank you, Eve. Thank you, Eve, and um, greetings from the Liberties in Dublin and Merry Day to all. Uh, before we begin, on behalf of all the speakers, we'd like to acknowledge the passing last month of John Bishop, who succumbed to COVID-19. John was a much-loved and much-admired Joycean scholar. His book on Finnegan's Wake, Joyce's Book of the Dark, continues to be a touchstone for all Joyceans. We'll all miss his keen intelligence, his intellectual generosity, his ready wit, and his unparalleled skill at Joycean charades, which is a thing. Next, I'd like to show a quick trailer about a brand new Trinity College virtual reality project to experience Ulysses Dublin when you're not there, which is appropriate for this year since because of quarantine, it's harder to experience Joyce's Dublin even when you are here in Dublin. Uh, Francesca, the trailer, please. Mixed Reality Ulysses is a reimagining of James Joyce's literary masterpiece for virtual and augmented reality. This pilot episode uses cutting-edge 3D filming techniques to create a pioneering dramatic reproduction of the opening scene. Audiences are invited to put on a headset and enter Joyce's world of Ulysses by embodying the central character of Stephen Dedalus. There, you will engage the stately plump Buck Mulligan in conversation, thereby experiencing the drama firsthand. This digital artwork acknowledges the new condition of active and globally connected audiences and advocates new opportunities for experiencing literature in an immersive way. 
Ulysses was chosen because of its site-specific nature and its inherent link to Dublin City. The VR application will allow audiences from any part of the globe to experience the sights and associated scenes from the story via a virtual reality headset. Mixed Reality Ulysses questions the essence of the performance spectacle in digital culture. The project investigates how narrative, presence, site specificity and embodiment have been altered by contemporary media and asks how they might operate in the future. And what is death? Your mother's or yours or my own? You saw only your mother die. I see them pop off every day in the mouth. Thank you. Um, and now for our speakers. First, we'll be hearing from Valérie Benajam. Valérie teaches at the University of Nantes in France. She co-edited with John Bishop a collection of articles on Joyce's representations of spatiality and space, making space in the works of James Joyce. She recently co-edited with um, Sylvain Belluc the collection Cognitive Joyce, and she's currently writing a study of the role of theater and drama in Joyce's fiction, Joyce's novel theater. Then we'll um, be hearing from Catherine Flynn, Associate Professor of English at UC Berkeley, where she works on Irish modernist literature. Her book, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris, was published last year, and she's currently working on an edited volume with Cambridge University Press entitled New Joyce Studies. Then we'll have John McCourt, Professor of English at the University of Macerata in Italy. The co-founder of the Trieste Joyce School, he is best known for James Joyce, A Passionate Exile, and also The Years of Bloom, Joyce in Trieste, 1904 to 1920. His diary about life in Italy during the coronavirus was published in installments in the Dublin Review of Books. And I'll be speaking last, so now over to Valérie. Um, hello, everyone, and thank you, Sam, for organizing this online conference and, and inviting me. Um, I'd like to talk today about Ulysses and the lockdown, and I've entitled this talk Life, Love, Voyage Round Your Own Little World. Um, this is a quote from the Nausicaa episode. In context, it's an allusion to Bloom remembering his original wooing of Molly, um, but it's also a reference to a surprising little book uh, written by French writer Xavier Demaitre, Voyage Autour de ma Chambre, or Voyage Around My Room, published in 1794, in which you're seeing in reverse here. Um, before I come to this book, however, I'd like to say that um, it has not been easy for me to draw a connection between Joyce and the lockdown at first, because it's always uh, the dialogue that has drawn me to Joyce. These, um, these subtle interactions that go on in the, in the subtext of those spoken words, what, what people would like to say and what they end up saying or revealing rather in spite of themselves about themselves or about their society more generally. Um, and how Joyce succeeds in exposing and dramatizing all these delicate levels of meaning. So it seemed particularly unjoycean to be confronted with a lockdown and its drastic reduction of dialogue, of dialogue in general, but also of our academic dialogue. For a lot of Joyceans, uh, the awareness of how serious the situation was coincided with the announcement of the cancellation of the James Joyce Symposium in Trieste. So from the start, the lockdown seemed to posit itself as the very antithesis of Joycean dialogue, uh, be it the dialogue of academic Joycians or the dialogue inside one of Joyce's books, uh, not to mention the dialogue I had with my students, which also ended. As one Joycean, uh, Kevin Detmar, very aptly put it uh, in an online video for the James Joyce Quarterly, what happens to humanities without humans? So for solace, I wondered, could I turn to Ulysses? After all, Ulysses is built around the originally provocative idea that a whole odyssey can be made in a single city. So was it possible to reduce the scope even further? Could the odyssey be made only in a house, in an apartment like mine, in a single room? One option presented itself uh, in the form of this delightful little book by Xavier Demaitre, Voyage Round My Room. Um, this is written in a style that parodies the travel writings of the 18th century. Uh, one common influence with Joyce is obviously Swift. Demetre uh, tells of his experience in Turin as he found himself under house arrest, locked in his room during exactly 42 days. 
uh, he approaches this limited territory exactly like the space of the voyage in a foreign country, describing the room in thorough details, its furniture, that, the art on the walls, um, dwelling in mock epic tones on banal incidents such as his falling off his chair. Um, and this is the starting point for a series of reflections on various more profound subjects such as social inequalities or the suddenness of history. Uh, this was actually written four years after the French Revolution. The book, in fact, unfolds uh, such a rich array of thoughts and considerations that in the end, Demetre contends that imagination has de facto nullified his confinement and preserved his freedom much more effectively than if he had been able to truly travel. As he gets ready to leave his rooms in the end, he even concludes that the house arrest was um, a real freedom and that now what he calls the yoke of current business, the obligations of duties and decorum, will return him to true captivity. He regrets leaving, I quote, this delightful country which contains all the goods and the riches in the world. I can only hope you have enjoyed or are still enjoying lockdown as much as that. So Xavier Demetre uh, made the best and the most of the occasion by writing a charming and very entertaining little book Definitely not as vast and all-encompassing a literary project as Joseph's Ulysses, but with a few uh, comparable features. Humour, of course, and we all know how much uh, this is needed at the moment, but also the dwelling and lingering on concrete details on the richness of everyday perceptions, as Joyce puts it in Scylla and Charybdis, hold to the now, the here, through which all future plunges into the past. In this respect, I believe Ulysses, although its protagonists are allowed to roam a whole city, can teach us even more than Demetre. In our modern lockdown, we have not been totally deprived of human interactions. Most of us, well, all of us today, have been able to retain contact with other people thanks to modern technology. We have Skype, Teams, life-size, Zoom, and so many other options. And yet these audiovisual means of modern transmission are but that, modes of audio and visual transmission. And as we have all painfully realized by now, they are far from conveying the full experience of interacting with humans. For a start, they miss three senses out of five. Zoom, like COVID-19, deprives us of smell and taste. And touch. Give us a touch, Poldy. God, I'm dying for it. You could spend the whole lockdown begging Zoom for a touch. The only touch you'll get is that of the keyboard. Our modern means of communication will therefore not satisfy all our senses. But literature, on the other hand, and Bloom's stream of consciousness in particular, can be extremely precise in conveying sensory perceptions, starting with this fine tang of faintly scented urine given to his palate in the very first introduction to the character. This is picked up and developed later on in Lestragonians when, I quote, Mr. Bloom ate a strips of sandwich, fresh clean bread, with relish of disgust pungent mustard, the feety savour of green cheese, sips of his wine soothed his palate, and further, glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the winepress grapes of Burgundy, sun's heat it is, seems to a secret touch telling me memory, touched, his sense moistened, remembered. Which triggers the whole sensuous description of the warm and chewed seed cake given to him by Molly's kiss. The complete quote is too long, unfortunately, for today, but you will remember that it sure beats Proust's Madeleine, not to mention Zoom. Zoom will not render the warmth of her couched body that rose on the air, mangling with the fragrance of the tea she poured. Zoom will not convey the synesthetic effect of senses combining the way literature can render this through Epelage and other rhetorical figures, such as Bloom entering the butchers to find, I quote again, the shiny links packed with force meat that fed his gaze and he's breathed in tranquilly the lukewarm breath of cooked spicy pig's blood. Even for rendering sound and sight, frankly, sometimes Zoom comes closer to the gramophone in every grave that Bloom imagines in Aedes. I quote again, after dinner on a Sunday, put on poor old great-grandfather, Krarark, hello, 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 I'm awfully glad, Krarark, awfully glad to see again, hello, hello, I'm awfully... Well, I just hope I'm sounding better than that today, but I'm not certain. Zoom will not render the way Joyce does the feeling that sounds mean sharing the same space with someone. 
like one Molly in a fine voice that day sang Rossini's Stabat Mater, and Bloom remembers, I told her to pitch her voice against that corner. I could feel the thrill in the air, the full people looking up. It will not render the echo of Cock Mulligan chucking lewdly in the library, dark, received, reserved. Let's bondy that dark dome extend into two iams, received, reverbed. Zoom doesn't have the prosody of Ulysses. As we stare shamelessly at people on the screen, as we've never been able to do before, Zoom will not render real exchanges of gazes, nor the sound waves directly coming from another human being. So this is my tentative answer to the problem of humanities without humans. Reading Ulysses, perhaps particularly Bloom's benevolent, melancholy stream of consciousness, will recreate for us something of the real human exchanges we are missing today. And finally, in homage to John Bishop, in remembrance of his incredible, formidable human and humane presence, I would like to stress that Ulysses, I'm thinking here more particularly of the Aedes episode, Ulysses will also give us the sense of coming together in mourning, which a combination of pandemic and lockdown has so cruelly withdrawn. The sense of poking our silk-hatted heads into the creaking carriage and entering deftly, seating ourselves. Come on, Simon. After you, Mr. Bloom said. Are we all here now? Come along. This is freely adapted from the beginning of ADs, as you've probably recognised. So the sense of mourning together is something that Ulysses will help us share, even though we are forbidden to do so in person. Humanities, therefore, were fewer humans without John anymore, but thanks to him, with a better understanding of what literature, of what Joyce can bring us as we go rattling along these awful times. Thank you for listening. All right, I'm up next. Uh, thanks, Valerie, for that lovely talk. Um, it's so perceptive. Uh, so um, I'm also going to talk about the problems of the body and of um, Joyce's understanding of the body at, at our particular moment. In the last chapter of James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Stephen Dedalus misquotes a line from Thomas Nash's poem, Litany in Time of Plague. Nash wrote the poem during one of a series of bubonic plagues that beset London in the 16th century. And the poem is fixated on death as a universal and imminent prospect. In my book, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris, I argue that Stephen unconsciously blends Nash's line, brightness falls from the air, with a line from Arthur Rimbaud's poem, Voyelle, to respond to the scent of Emma Cleary's body as it emits distilled odour and a dew. In the 1903 Dublin of Portrait, Stephen and Emma's intimacy is constrained by Catholic morals and Edwardian gender roles. Yet, as their spontaneous expressions mingle, the two of them engage unwittingly in an aesthetic collaboration. This moment of interconnection, of words and smells, undermines the calculations of the marriage market. Its transient beauty defines the individualizing and objectifying logic of consumption. But in a time of pandemic, does this scene invoke a sense of peril rather than triumph? What meaning does an aesthetic of the poorest body have for us now in our moment of threat? In the Hades episode of Ulysses, Leopold Bloom reflects on widespread illnesses. En route to Glasnevin Cemetery, the very journey that Valerie just uh, mentioned, the advertising agent muses, Scarlatina, influenza epidemics, canvassing for death, don't miss this chance. Joyce published the first version of the episode in September 1918, just as the influenza pandemic was beginning to take hold. He was sheltering in Zurich from the First World War. Spanish flu caused the death of one of the group of amateur actors he was involved with. He added these lines three years later, when the full global impact of the world of the flu was known. Bloom's reflection, surprisingly, associates pandemics such as influenza and scarlet fever, which killed thousands of people in the 19th century, with publicity campaigns. His association might appear to normalize premature death 
and to make consumer choices or even democracy seem like processes of consensual infection. Yet Bloom recognizes that diseases like scarlet fever and influenza resemble the external forms and structures that shape our existences. If we feel we can choose to opt in or out, don't miss this chance, that choice is framed by and contingent on external circumstances. Whereas Ulysses explores the ineluctable imbrication of the individual in larger structures and processes, Finnegan's Wake overwhelms the individual. Its characters are submerged in a portmanteau language that superimposes different historical epochs, ethnic groups, and linguistic phrases. They merge with physical objects, material processes, and microbial actions. Humphrey Chimpton Erker, the central figure of the book, is identified with a series of historical personages, from Noah to General Wellington, in an inclusivity and pervasiveness that is signaled by his pseudonyms, Here Comes Everybody, and Haveth Childers Everywhere. His initials appear like a virus in a massive number of phrases over the course of the text, in a manner that suits his archetypal identity as invader. Yet if such viral spread prompts the efforts of our moment, in which our lives, the lives of people we love, and the lives of people we don't even know, depend upon our maintaining physical distance, the wake situates it within a more complex reality. While outsiders have often been blamed for infection, Joyce's text continually undermines the logic of native purity and foreign corruption. To take a specific example, HDE's twin sons, Shem and Sean, are cast in an early dialogue as native and invader, Mott and Jute. However, Mott, as his name suggests, is already of mixed pedigree. In a collapse of time frames, he sees the invading Jute as a Partholone, one of the Partholonians described in the medieval pseudo-history Leber Gabal Aaron, the Book of Invasions, as forming an early colony in an uninhabited um, post-alluvial Ireland. Mutt speaks of ye plain of my elders, the plain of my elders, or the plain of Moyelta, an area north of Dublin where the Partholonians lived until almost 9,000 of them were wiped out in one week by a plague. This illness comes from within, striking the Partholonians as they live in isolation, apart alone. An autochthonous pandemic that refutes the notion of an uncontaminated land and a pure, safe people. If our need for quarantine tempts us to think of ourselves as discrete individuals and invites states to think in terms of narrowly defined national interests, the wake shows us our universal vulnerability as well as our interconnection. Mott signals this when he replaces Let Air and Remember, Thomas More's song of invaders triumphantly repelled, with Let Ear Him Remember. The safeguarded and idealized nation is transformed into temporal discontinuity and recollection into repeated unverified murmurings. As Mott likens the movements of foreign peoples to the waves of the sea, and here I'm going to read a little bit of the wake. Let ear him rumur moor, near merge two races, sweet and brack, murthering woo, hither crashing eastwards, they are insurgents, hence cool at ebb, they requiesce. Countlessness of live stories have neither fallen by this plage, flick as flow flakes, litters from aloft, like a vast wizard of all whirl worlds. Now all are tuned to the mound, iskis to iskis, erda from erda, pride, O oh pride, thy prides. This plage on which so many life stories end is both plague and beach. Mutt mourns these deaths, like Gabriel Conroy looking at the snow at the end of the dead. Yet Mutt's speech, like the English language itself, suggests a long history of fertile assimilation. If viruses are endemic to the human community and infection inevitable, those viruses eventually become part of us. The plane of my elders is a place of death, but it's also one of generation, a vast blizzard of cruel worlds that creates a complex future. Joyce brings Dubliners to a close with Gabriel's elegy, but Mott's 
is followed promptly by Jute's monosyllabic rejoinder, stench, an abrupt reminder of the corruptibility of flesh. Mott answers this disturbing observation with an emphatic fiat fuit, here and under lie they, large by the small. Noting the fumigant use of quicklime and lie in the burial of plague victims, both the famed and the ordinary, Mott commands, he both commands new life, fiat, and acknowledges its passing, fuit. so much uh, Catherine and Valerie. Um, I think it's my turn. Um, in 1914 as World War I set in, um, Joyce might well have said, I have no idea what's awaiting me or what will happen when all this ends. But of course he didn't say that. That was the doctor in Camus' plague. The full quote is, I have no idea what's awaiting me or what will happen when all this ends. For the moment I know this, there are sick people and they need curing. In other words, get on with the day job. And that's precisely what Joyce did. He got on with the day job in 1914, 15, 16, 17, 18, and all the way through to the composition of Ulysses. Perhaps because he was very well aware that there were sick people and they need curing just as there are sick people today and we need cures. And one of the best cures is Joyce's Ulysses. Um, so Joyce pressed on with the day job in a difficult time in Trieste, a time of poverty and turmoil. Um, <clears throat> and despite the disappointment of um, Dubliners not selling too many copies or a portrait. And um, he began writing Ulysses as we know. Stately Trump book Mulligan and the entire cast of his modern day domestic epic that we celebrate today, 98 years later, were being fleshed out just as Joyce's English language students in Trieste were being enlisted or were volunteering to fight in the First World War, some on the Italian side, some on the Austrian side, much like Stephen Dedalus' young, Stephen Dedalus's young pupils in Ulysses in the Nestor episode. So Joyce lived through a time of turmoil in Trieste when the Italian leaning city was very much under attack from the Austrians. Social and cultural life as Joyce had known it there and indeed in Europe in general was disappearing and the continent was being torn apart and the Italian restaurants and cultural icons and the newspaper that Joyce wrote for were being torn down. And Stanislaus of course Joyce's brother was one of many irredentisti to be interned in Austria for the duration of the war. And as Catherine was saying, the world was coming to terms and struggling to do so with the Spanish flu, which killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide between 1918 and 1920. But if we read uh, the article by Elizabeth um, Ulka, uh, Wood for the Coffins Ran Out, Modernism and the Shadowed Afterlife of the Influenza Epidemic, um, we learn the virus came with high temperature, headache, and a terrible cough, symptoms not unlike those of a typical flu. It could also cause lethal complications, such as the deadly pneumonia that could quickly develop. The virus often traveled deep in the lung tissue, setting off a grotesque set of symptoms. Sounds all too familiar. And as, again, Catherine has said, Bloom reflects on this in heydays. So I think we can think about the war, we can think about the Spanish flu epidemic. We can think about 1916 and the turmoil that brought in Ireland. Um, and Joyce's sense of a world that was falling apart, it was being lost. And it was only partly to be regretted, but could never be brought back or retrieved. Um, the conflict then and the upheaval that he lived through brought a new world into view. But for the moment when Joyce was writing Ulysses, he was, he was living in a moment of great uncertainty and concentrating on capturing in words everything that was being swept away. The world of Dublin in 1904, but also the cosmopolitan world of Trieste in its shadows, in Dublin's shadows, the Terry of Finnegan's Wake. So that sense of change that I think helped drive Joyce to 
create his 1904 Dublin. Um, he did so, he did create this um, out, as I said, of this sense of change, which is nothing new. Our own historical moment, similarly, um, is, is, one of, is one of change. Um, although I think our environmental threat seems to have a more permanent feel, a more global feel than that of a war, which in a sense comes and goes. So what can we take from Ulysses that might be consolatory today? And I know other speed, the other speakers have addressed this as well. As we attempt to return to some kind of altered normality, I think it is a sense, it's very banal in a way, uh, a sense and a celebration of the everyday, the assertion of the importance of the individual, the necessity of finding a way of muddling through, keeping on, keeping on, as Leopold Bloom and indeed Stephen Dedalus did on the 16th of June 1904, literally saving the day or surviving for another day, but ultimately resolving nothing. Um, so Joyce's focus then on normal people uh, seems to be what is so central in, in this novel and is, is indeed central in the novel as a form. Um, the assertion of the value of the normal, even when the normal is flawed and compromised and unheroic, as it always is, is all the more important, however, when the quotidian, as we have known, it, is suspended. That's what was happening to Joyce as he wrote Ulysses, the quotidian as he knew it was suspended. I think we know something about that ourselves today. Ulysses would have been a much shorter novel if Joyce had set it in March 2020, the tower scene could have happened, but Haynes would have been put in quarantine up on the roof, maybe. But that would have let Stephen stay on. Stephen um, wouldn't, of course, have been teaching in Nestor, in Mr. Deason's school. He might have been able to go for his walk along Sandymount Strand, if he could have found a space on Sandymount Strand, which has been thronged um, for the last few months by Irish people out for their constitutional. Um, Leopold Bloom's early chapters mightn't have been so different because his walks around Dublin never really exceed a fairly small five kilometer, kilometer limit. His heading out on his own to buy a kidney would be fine, um, as is his waiting in queue, despite his uh, impatience. His admiration of a young woman's vigorous hips and the hope of being able to walk home behind her to enjoy the fullest view of her moving hams would possibly have been scratched out as politically incorrect in her own time. So too, I reckon, the entire Nausicaa chapter, but that already caused problems back in the day. There would have been no mass in uh, Westland Row. Um, there would have been no funeral um, for Paddy Dignam. Uh, no good glass of Burgundy or Gorgonzola cheese. No trips to the offices of the Freedman Colonel. All the colonels should have been working from home. No music, no lunch in the Ormond Hotel, and not even a trip to Hollis Street, even if Bloom was intent on, quote, preserving his proper distance, and there only to inquire about a lady, now an inmate of Horne's house. Nighttown would have been closed, and Bella Cohen would have been sitting at home wondering what to do with herself. Molly Bloom, too, I doubt she would have been terribly willing to host Blaze's Boylan. Uh, Stephen and Leopold could have met in Seven Extra Street with, with social distancing, but I doubt very much if Stephen a sober Stephen would have accepted Bloom's invitation. So we'd have been left, in other words, with very little. Um, and I think that is the only thing we can conclude. Um, bits of Bloom's morning tour could have been included, but they were very much in keeping with our own time. When he thinks about his conversation with McCoy, he dislikes McCoy's flattery, his, what Bloom calls, soft soaping. Give you the need before thinking about Molly putting herself in danger by travelling to Belfast. I hope that smallpox up there doesn't get worse. Suppose she wouldn't let herself be vaccinated again. Bloom's worry is not out of place, as Sam has shown. Um, there was a break, an outbreak of smallpox in Belfast at this time. And um, we can also read parliamentary reports about this. All the more reason then for Bloom, who Beaufort, Mr. Beaufort, Beaufort calls the, the soapy sneak in Circe to linger in the soap section of Sweeney's and think, nice smell these soaps have, pure curd soap, and to feel sympathy later on for the pharmacist, living all the day among herbs, ointments, disinfectants. Then as now personal hygiene and regular washing with soap must have seemed at times to be the only barrier between humanity and Armageddon. And so the prayer uttered by the daughters of Aaron, wandering soap, pray for us, um, takes on 
uh, even more importance. Given its life-saving qualities, it is small wonder that Bloom's bar of soap um, takes on a life of its own in Circe. The soap, we're a capital couple, our Bloom and I, he brightens the earth, polish the sky. relevant there for our own times, I suppose, on soap. Ulysses provides an unvarnished and deeply honest depiction of ordinary life. And Joyce knew, I think, it was the role of the writer to bear witness. He did so in a time of death um, and war, um, but he didn't choose to focus on the banality of war or the tragic inevitability of death. He did use the Iliad if that was what he wanted to do. He chose instead to celebrate the peace to celebrate that which was being taken away by war and indeed was being threatened by the flu uh, pandemic. What COVID-19 reveals to us afresh is that the only certainty we have is uncertainty. But if we'd read Ulysses properly and looked properly at Bloom and Stephen, who are constantly haunted by death and a sense of their own mortality, we already knew that. Ulysses interrogates then and destabilizes everything, the foundation stones of our culture, and encourages us to think and question all of our certitudes. But it also teaches us to accept the uncertainty of our daily existence, so as to help us affirm and celebrate the gift that is every single day, and none more so than Bloomsday. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. Um, just to um, remind you, if you have questions, you could please use the uh, question and answer box. Um, so, stuck in the middle with Ulysses. Ulysses is written on a human scale. Even with the abstractions of the Ithaca episode, it remains grounded in the human and the everyday. Ulysses is filled with the kinds of mundane experiences that many of us missed in our various quarantines. Randomly meeting people in the streets, going to shops and pubs, eating out, chatting amiably, and so on. Ulysses archives the bountiful, ephemeral quotidian. One small aspect of Bloom's character that becomes evident over the course of the day is that he has a mild, ambient paranoia about, tuber about tuberculosis, as if he's perpetually worried that the disease could be anywhere around him. He pays attention to incipient symptoms and people he meets. And in Ithaca, we learn that he imagines his greenhouse to be located in either, either Dundrum or Sutton North, precisely because the climates in these two suburbs are favorable against contracting the disease. On the one hand, there's a certain practicality to Bloom's concern. Through the early 20th century, tuberculosis and mortality therefrom was more prevalent in Ireland compared to other European countries because of malnutrition, overcrowding, and lack of sufficient health care. On the other hand, as we learn in Ithaca, two of Bloom's childhood friends died from tuberculosis. So this textual detail isn't just a window to, into the socioeconomic climate, it also shows something personal about Bloom. Bloom's thoughts are colored by this and other anxieties, such as, more prominently, Molly's in, impeding infidelity and Bloom's lingering grief over his son Rudy's death. Rudy's death is just one of the reminders that the everyday the unexceptional is always haunted by worry and concern. Life is fragile and it doesn't take much for it to go wrong. Just think how quickly life changed for us in February and March. But Ulysses also shows us that there is humor and even joy amidst this fragility. On the one hand, the sullen solipsistic Stephen might well prefer a bout of isolation. He is already socially distant. On the other hand, Bloom prefers to thrive amidst people as he thinks as he leaves Glasnevin Cemetery and wants to do away with morbid thoughts. Plenty to see and hear and feel yet. Feel live, warm beings near you. Let them sleep in their maggoty beds. They are not gonna get me this innings. Warm beds, warm, full-blooded life. Towards the end of the book, when Bloom and Stephen go out to Bloom's back garden, Bloom shows off his astronomical knowledge, such as it is, and points out phenomena of ever-increasing scales, which is phrased in the cold, seemingly impersonal Ithacan style as to infinitely remote futures in comparison with which the years, three score and 10, of allotted human life formed a parenthesis of infinitesimal brevity. 
attention next turns to the other direction, to ever diminishing scales, dividends and divisors ever diminishing without actual division, till if the progress were carried far enough, not nowhere was never reached. The human parenthesis of infinitesimal brevity, full-blooded life, as Bloom calls it, lies in between these two realms of scale, the cosmically vast and the microscopically minuscule. The COVID crisis has certainly drawn attention to, among other things, the fragility of our in-between. In quarantine, we are besieged by forces on both the macro and micro scales, stuck within a parenthesis of infinitesimal brevity in between two forces. On the micro scale, we have the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2. While it is a complex point as to whether viruses qualify as living beings, they do exhibit the fundamental impulse of life, the transmission and perpetuation of genetic information. For this, they need to use animals and humans. We are the vehicles for their survival. According to the English biologist William Hamilton, besides viruses, this is what our very genes do. Use humans as expendable carriers in order that they might propagate. Directly following from Hamilton's gene's eye view perspective of Darwinism, Richard Dawkins famously coined the expression, the selfish gene. Seen in this way, the selfish virus is a rival to our own DNA in that both exploit us for their own ends. In Oxen of the Sun, a drunken Stephen actually grocks on to something like Hamilton and Dawkins' point, but Stephen's masculinist perspective locates the propagational agency onto the sperm rather than the gene. He says, we are means to these small creatures within us, and nature has other ends than we. Seen from the gene's perspective, humans are incidental to life. We are but the means for the propagation of genetic information. So in quarantine, we are trying to keep the virus's genes at bay in order that our, our genes might survive instead. But we're also confronted by a pernicious macro force that likewise exhibits a kind of selfish viral logic. And we call this force capitalism. Various politicians and commentators have been calling for an easing or even ending of quarantine in order to get the economy back on track without much or any regard for the lives lost for capital. To take just one example, and as we all know, there are many, in April, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, implored an end to quarantine because, quote, there are more important things than living, unquote. Or as Bloom awkwardly but trenchantly relates in Eumaeus, it's all a question of the money question. Like the virus, capital thrives on human hosts for its propagation without regard for whether individual hosts live or die. Like nature, capitalism is not on the side of humans. It may be a human endeavor, but it is not human and has other ends than we. If we can say that capitalism is like a virus, then the converse analogy also holds. The virus is entrepreneurial. It exploits resources ruthlessly in service of its own propagation. And so we're stuck in the middle between the selfish virus, the selfish virus and selfish capital. What we have here in our human scale is each other and warm, full-blooded life. We're alone with others. As the song says, stuck in the middle of you. And in this pandemic, I've been stuck in the middle with Ulysses which is at least not much of a change for me. As readers of Ulysses, one of the things we're used to is the idea of living with ambiguity and the unknown. I'm not just referring to the formal complexities of Ulysses, but rather in that how Ulysses shows us that while life is difficult, in its difficulties, there can be joys. One of the lessons of Ulysses is to say what Nietzsche calls the great yes to life, to affirm all aspects of life, good, and bad and equivocal, just like your one Molly. In living on in the shadow of SARS-CoV-2, there are many unpleasant uncertainties that we have to deal with. Our life for the moment is an exercise in trying to abide and even affirm ambiguity. As a footnote and a return to objective, verifiable mathematical certainty, 
last year's Bloomsday was a bit more active for me than this year's homebound Zoom-ridden version. So along with my family, we retraced all of Bloom's steps in Dublin, and I discovered at the end of the day that if Bloom had a Fitbit on Bloom's Day, it would read 22,203 steps. Thank you. Um, we have time for questions. Um, Kerry Walsh has a question. Hi, Kerry. Um, does anyone have an opinion about what illness Beatrice has recently recovered from in Exiles? I'd wondered for a moment if it was a flu. The play is set in 1912. Of course, it could have been any serious illness. The play is not forthcoming about the specific nature of her illness. Um, I'm not sure what the answer to that might be. Do any of my co-panelists have? Um, yeah, sorry, I think we're all at a blank on that. Um, then a question from um, Eddie Wang. Sam, how do you think James Joyce's socialist past comes out in his later works? Do you think Joyce, in the wake of Ulysses, offers a critique of capitalism? Um, anyone want to take a, I have a few things I could say, but anyone, uh, John, Catherine, Valerie? Is that Catherine? Yeah, Catherine? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I mean, it's a huge question and it's a great one. I mean, there, Joyce is contending with a lot of major forces in his writing, you know, like Stephen says, I'm the servant of two masters, um, the British Empire and uh, the Catholic Church, but also there's another that wants me for odd jobs, which is the cause of Irish nationalism. And uh, capitalism in some ways is um, a larger but more insidious force that um, registers in more discreet ways, but continually in Joyce's writing. And uh, I think it's great to think about um, the virus as entrepreneurial, always looking for a niche, a way to expand, trying to, you know, enlarge its, its market presence. Um, but uh, there is, I think Joyce is seriously contending with the um, deformation of social relations by exchange, by the idea that um, you're, you're worth something in society, you have to trade on your value, you have to accumulate greater value, or the, in a way, the worse um, corollary, which is that you use other people, you know, you turn them to task. And so Bloom, in this respect, is really to be contrasted with Blazes Boylan, who um, uh, inhabits a much more uh, masculinist um, version of being a man in the world. You know, he turns people to profit, he takes advantage of them, whereas Bloom is constantly reflecting in a, a very gentle way, actually, about his imprecation in larger structures of exploitation and about how the city eats people up. Um, and uh, his constant thinking is a kind of counterforce to that. Um, you could say that Finnegan's Wake takes that to an extreme where um, the, this objectifying, individualizing logic that um, uh, we could see as specific capitalism, the idea that we're trained to think of ourselves as discrete individuals who have power, um, that that, and that illusion is kind of used to exploit us in lots of ways and to turn us to task or to profit. In Finnegan's Wake, that's completely eroded. And there's a sense of uh, a very shared experience um, of mutual influence of, um, in some ways, powerlessness, but uh, that in its positive sense is about interconnection and a shared human condition that is um, full of pleasure and humor and memory. Um, and that these, um, these very spontaneous events, um, you know, Finnegan's Wake are, I think, um, opposed to the structures of consumption and capitalism. Finnegan's Wake is a book that can't just be consumed. You know, you can become absorbed in it but you can't just binge read it and say, that was great, now on to the next. It's a book that asks you to be really active and to enter into a conversation with other people um, in which you're exchanging, which you're listening and sharing, and you're creating something, something spontaneous, something ephemeral maybe. And uh, this is a very different logic to one of accumulation or counting or um, exploitation in some way. That would be my off-the-cuff answer. Thank you very much for that, Catherine. I'm going to take a...
over from Sam because we've so many questions coming in uh, and some really interesting ones. Uh, but Sam, one for you, uh, which is from Paul Santamore. Greetings to you, Paul. Uh, do you see counter models in Joyce's work to the viral stroke capitalist mode of mechanical self-propagation? You pointed us to the middle scale of the human, but this is in addition to that. And I think that picks up on your, your extended metaphor of the viral uh, that you perhaps uh, foolishly began to uh, engage in your talk because Paul is, is uh, asking a little bit of, or a little bit of elaboration on that. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks. Um, uh, hi, Paul. Um, that yeah, it's a fantastic question. I think that to a certain extent, language would be a mode of sort of non-capitalistic, non-viral um, propagation that you have in Joyce's way of ways in which a human community can be formed, in which you have communication. And there is, I think, something. There's a a uh, wonderful line Budgeon has in James Joyce and Making of Ulysses that in Joyce representation verges on the mystical, that um, there's something in the precise use of language that Joyce practices in the sort of the Joycean aesthetic, that there's just some, that, that's the, the, the Aristotelian quality of something more through that. And I think that intersubjective linguistic communication would be the kind of, say, a non-capitalistic rapport that Joyce proposes. But this is, of course, one has to, one has to admit that Joyce, uh, um, as a historically situated individual, is eminently constrained within capitalist models of production. Joyce, in many ways, is eminently bourgeois, worried very much about the production, the mechanics of the production of um, his text, specifically um, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. So he, he, is, he has not certainly not escaped from the capitalistic model, at least in that sense. But I think within his text, he might be proposing something else. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else wants to uh, take a stab at this. Uh, we might move to a second question because there are so many coming in. I do want to say to people who put in questions that the panel We'll also uh, try and answer some of them uh, separately. But I want to go to Caleb Dance's question, uh, a very good question for any of these wonderful scholars. Does Joyce's presentation of Molly's self-isolation offer a different and perhaps gendered reflection on social distancing? I wonder, Valerie, if, if you might have anything to say on that as you began with the, the small room uh, and, uh, and Demetra, um, perhaps you could you could tackle the question of Molly. Um, yes, um, I, I don't know whether Molly is really an example of social distancing. I mean, she uh, she does uh, break the rules of um, of lockdown quite a bit with her lover that day. Um, the um, yeah, that, that, I think there was a, a Joycean who did uh, compare the lockdown to, to Molly or say we should all do like Molly and stay in bed, but escape, except we can't invite our lovers, you know, that's not fun. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, no, I'm not sure Molly's a very good example of social distancing. I, I don't imagine her as, as distancing from others at all, actually. Uh, she's, she's so much flesh. Um, or, you know, if, or if you could spend the whole lockdown in bed with Molly, fine. But uh, being Molly alone in bed, uh, that wouldn't be fun. So not a good model. Okay, well, well thank you for that question. Um, uh, and uh, we've time for a couple more, but uh, I think uh, an interesting question has come in from Alvaro Diaz de Medina. Alvaro, I'm going to take your question now, and I think it does pick up on something that both Sam but also John McCourt raised about the idea of normality and the everyday. Does Joyce's celebration of normality as a weapon against uncertainty, uh, possibly following Aristotle, possibly following Aquinas, um, possibly not, uh, how, how do we understand this idea of normality as, as defense against unpredictability. John, perhaps we could go to you because I think uncertainty was uh, one of your themes. Uh, yeah, it's a big question. Like all of these, it's a very big question. I mean, I think Joyce saw normality being threatened um, and he saw the, 
rowing forces of capitalism, nationalism, power struggles from Trieste when he says in a letter, um, whoever has the last sack of flour um, will win the war. Um, so that it comes down to supplies in some way. And that reminded me a little bit of our own moment where at a certain point we were as nations fighting over masks and PPE equipment and soap and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Joyce's novel, I think, um, yeah, I, all I can say is what I said in the talk, really. It reinstates the, the importance of, 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 of normality, but in a very individualistic way. I think um, Sam is right when he says how bourgeois, in a way, Joyce is. Um, how um, it's hard to look in Joyce for a huge political critique of capitalism. Well, it may be there, but um, it's so hard to tease, to tease it out. So um, I'm also at the end of five hours of doing this. Thank you very, thank you very much, John. Uh, I'm going to, uh, with so many questions, and I know that people will have them answered separately if, if the, the team can manage it. But I want to just finish with a, a quick wrap up question, uh, really, because I think it's very interesting, having heard your presentations, to think about whether your own experience of reading Ulysses or thinking about Ulysses has been changed in any way uh, by the experience of the pandemic and of living in lockdown. Um, it's a question for anybody, but uh, maybe Sam, as you're the, the host of this event, I might push that one on you. Yeah, when, when this all started, you know, 20 years ago, um, uh, as it seemed, I, the, my initial reaction was that perhaps Beckett would be offering the, the, the better way or the more conducive way to think through this since so much Beckett actively thematizes, so much of what, what our experiences Beckett actively thematizes. And I don't, certainly don't want to take away from that, but as the, 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 these months have progressed, I think there is more in Joyce, even if he has very little engagement with um, um, the Spanish influenza epidemic, um, or with, um, while there is a fair amount about infectious disease such as tuberculosis in Ulysses, it's very much background ambient, as I said. But I think in terms of how Joyce conceptualizes community, that how you can be both alone and an individual, but still very much a part of a larger social structure. I think this is where um, um, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake can be very um, um, illuminating. That is it a, there's a presentation at the Dublin Joy Summer School many years ago by Sean Latham, where he made, Sean made a very interesting point that you think of Joyce as an urban writer, but there's something in the urban experience that's absent in Joyce. And that's the experience of being stuck being immersed and, and an anonymous in a large crowd that pounds um, haikus in the Paris Metro, just those two lines, has more about that urban experience than pretty much anything in Joyce. But I, thinking over uh, Sean's paper, I realized that to take a line that various software companies use to defend um, hastily released software, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That it's very much a part of Joyce's aesthetic that you're not um, an anonymous little thing in a crowd. Everyone is an individual. Take that little scene at the end of Wandering Rocks of the crowd that the, um, uh, the, the Viceroy's uh, carriage passes by. Everyone is given a name. Each, each member of that crowd is a person. And to a certain extent, one could say that Joyce is doing that in a very large and weird scale in Finnegan's Wake. Here comes everybody. Each everybody is a person with a name. And so that's sort of the, perhaps one way that Joyce reconciles the tension of individual and society, which has certainly become a fault line in our politics now. So the lines that, you know, my freedom is worth more than your health. No, that they're both mutually enforcing. We can have both freedom and health, health if we work together. Thank you very much, Sam. And that idea of being alone and also part of a larger social structure, as you've said, is probably a, a great takeaway from, from, from this session. I know there are lots more questions. I also see lots of, of compliments and, and thank yous coming through on the Q&A. And I think that is a, a testimony to just how fascinating these talks have been over the last hour. So uh, as we wrap up, I, I want to say a very uh, heartfelt thanks 
to our speakers, to Valerie, to Catherine, to John and Sam, many thanks for organising this event as well. Uh, I'd also like to, before we close, thank the wonderful team at the Long Room Hub uh, and Francesca in particular, who help us run these events. Um, and above all, I want to thank our audience uh, who have listened so attentively, who have asked such perceptive and informed questions. Uh, we're coming to the end of, of the Bloomsday event, but please do keep an eye on the Long Room Hub website. There are going to be many more online events coming up, uh, and you'll also find uh, links to podcasts and links to uh, coverage of events such as this one that might interest you. Uh, so I think that that wraps up our uh, virtual Bloomsday celebrations for today. Thank you all again, and you may now leave the Zoom room. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.